Thanks for tuning in to the Survival to Thrival podcast, based on the book series with the same name. I'm Helen Croydon, and I'm the interviewer of the biggest stars of the show, the two co-authors, Tehi Norm and Bob Tinker. Tehi and Bob are a duo of investor and entrepreneur. They have a long history of working together and have written two books together, aimed at founders and entrepreneurs striving to build enterprise startups. This podcast is based on the themes, advice and real world stories from their book series, Survival to Thrival. If you enjoyed this, please like it, subscribe or share it with your network. Welcome to the next edition of the Survival to Thrival podcast. Well, the go-to-market playbook is a key part of go-to-market fit to unlock growth. Last episode, we talked about how to build the go-to-market playbook. Today, we're focusing on what's next. How does a startup operationalize the go-to-market playbook? How do we get the team behind it, operationalize it, measure it, evolve and change it? And what are the challenges? So, Bob, what's hard particularly about getting the team aligned behind the go-to-market playbook? Well, the thing about the go-to-market playbook is it's not just a sales thing. And I think one of the things that's particularly hard is that when people first hear the term go-to-market playbook, they immediately sort of assume, ah, that's a sales thing. Sales go deal with that and marketing will do their thing and product will do their thing. Unfortunately, that's not the right way to think about it. And that actually creates a challenge. The go-to-market playbook cuts across sales, cuts across marketing, cuts across product, involves everybody. So actually, one of the hardest things about that is just mentally getting everybody around the idea that the go-to-market playbook actually involves all part of the company and they all need to be part of helping execute on it. So it turns out that finding go-to-market fit and executing the playbook is the first real example of cross-functional uh, execution and why it's so hard to do. And in early stage startups, uh, surprisingly, that cross-functional integration is a bit easier. And it's because the whole company is focused on it. And so you have a natural playbook leader who's the CEO of the company because the CEO himself or herself are so driven to finding it. However, what I find is that as the company gets bigger, and let's say you're on your second product or third product, finding go-to-market fit becomes much harder because the CEO now is sort of views himself or herself as sort of more elevated and sort of has other more important things. And so as a result, the CEO is not that cross-functional leader to build this playbook and drive it. And as Bob mentioned, there's no other leader who has really the authority to, to drive it. Mm-hmm. And with it being cross-departmental, who instigates it? Sales, marketing, someone else? I typically see go-to-market playbooks come from two places. One is the CEO saying, hey, getting our go-to-market playbook is the number one thing we need to do to be able to unlock growth, which is actually the number one thing for the company as a startup. Sometimes if it's a more of a technical product founding CEO, there's often somebody responsible for sort of driving revenue and growth. Could be a CRO, could be a VP of sales. Sometimes in a product-led sales, it might be VP of marketing. Sometimes it's actually somebody more on the go-to-market side. I've seen both work. But again, you know, the trick is that it involves sales, marketing, and product together. And however you make that happen, whoever the best leader is in the company to be able to pull that off and drive collaboration, uh, there's no one perfect answer for it. It's you know, Every company is a little bit different, but the point is it can't just be one person. 
Mm -hmm. So presumably when you've got the buy-in of the whole company, let's talk a little bit about the operationalizing of it. What are the handoffs involved inside the playbook? Well, given that the go-to-market playbook involves sort of how do you find and first engage with customers? How do you educate them? You know, how do you then, you know, put them into an eval? How do you have salespeople talk to them? Like it involves the whole customer journey. Well, as a natural result of that, there's going to be handoff points in the playbook where, you know, the first couple parts of the playbook might be handled by marketing and they get handled by sales or maybe it goes to product, whatever it is, like there's multiple handoff points. Probably the biggest one is between marketing and sales. And depending on the type of playbook you're running, sometimes that handoff is after the first or second step. Sometimes sales gets involved much later, but that handoff point is often where balls get dropped. Yeah. So the most common uh, handoff when people think about these go-to-market playbooks is between marketing to sales. In other words, marketing marketing is there driving, generating pipeline, generating leads, and how to do that handoff from uh, a marketing generated lead to pipeline that sales then follows up on. So that one handoff is uh, what most people view. However, there are many other play handoffs. For example, there's sales giving a handoff to marketing in terms of, let's say, what marketing should go after in terms of a new ICP or there could be a new urgent pain or a new wow to leverage or some competitive feedback. So the handoff shouldn't be viewed as one directional, but it's really bi-directional between marketing and sales. Yeah, there's, there's sort of an important distinction here that in sort of a classic sales-led motion, marketing generates leads and pipeline and then hands it off to sales, and that's the handoff point. And I think a lot of people that are sort of used to sales-led go-to-market motions will be used to that. But if you look at a lot of the more modern go-to-market models where it's a marketing-led sales playbook where marketing handles not just the lead generation, but driving customers into engagement and then maybe driving customers into an online free trial that then gathers some analytics about the customer usage. The handoff to sales happens much later. And sometimes that actually might be handing off sort of a customer that's already an eval with the right metrics to an inside salesperson to make a call. And these handoffs can happen anywhere, depending on sort of how you design your go-to-market playbook. But I think the the takeaway here is that, you know, one version of that is the classic marketing hands leads to sales, but there are lots of other versions of that, particularly in marketing-led or product-led sales playbooks where the handoff happens much later. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the, the product. Where does the product team fit into this? What's their involvement? So there's two key parts of the product involvement. One is in the initial development of the playbook that often the wow of the product and value proposition needs to be elevated into the playbook. And that's a, you know, the product team plays a big part of that. The second part of the product team being involved in it is that sometimes there are changes that need to be made to the product to make it fit better into the go-to-market motion. So let's sort of unpack that into sort of two examples. With the first one that the wow like a key part of the go-to-market playbook is what's that thing that causes customers to lean and say, I want to learn more. You know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, like the VP of product and the CEO don't get to decide the wow the customer does. One of the things that sometimes happens is that the pro- the wow gets buried in the product because initially maybe people didn't think it was that important and suddenly realize, hey, that feature is actually really important. If you think about the sales motion with demos or evals, if you bury the wow inside the product and make it hard to find, like it makes it really hard to 
you know, show off that wow as part of the go to market playbook. Yeah. You know, we had this at Mobile Iron that we had to actually change our user interface so that we elevated some of these key wow features further up into the UI just so people could find them as part of doing an eval or demo. The second example is more complicated and takes more work, which is that often some fundamental changes need to be made to the product to fit it into the go-to-market motion. This is particularly true for sort of marketing-led and product-led sales motions where the product and marketing drives more of the playbook. How easy is it for a customer to get onboarded? Where do they get stuck? How do they learn? How do you build in education into the product? How do you make things obvious so the customer knows what to do? Like in a sales-led playbook, often there's a little bit of a crutch where you've got a salesperson or a sales engineer helping the customer through the product for the first time. But if you're in a marketing or product-led sales book, the product has to be much more understandable by the customer without help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that is a often requires a significant iteration on the product as it starts to meet customers so that you can automate that journey from first touch to understanding what the product does. Yeah, I would add a third, and that relates to blockers. In particular, it's like an offensive tool. So, you know, you're trying to maximize your offense. However, um, you know, with every product, there's going to be deficiencies vis-a-vis the competition, you know, things that the competitors using from an offensive standpoint Um, and, and other things that may be deficient. And so things that are blocking you in advancing in, uh, in the playbook. And so identifying those blockers and fixing them also will become critical to basically support the, the go to market motion. Yeah. There's, there's an interesting thing that I learned the hard way because it was confusing for me when you're building an early stage product and, you know, it's running through your go to market playbook and you're getting at bats with customers, the tendency for a product team and engineering team, rightfully so, is to focus on those features and capabilities that customers are using a lot in production. So you look at sort of the analytics on the product and be like, these features are really important because customers are using them a lot and you want to invest more in those. And sometimes the wow or these things that actually help the product move through the go-to-market motion don't show up in sort of the analytics on the product when you study what are the features that the customers use every day. Because a lot of this is just things like in onboarding, the customer uses once, or in demo that they see in the beginning. One of the mistakes I made in the beginning was, you know, sort of being single-mindedly focused on the features that the customers are going to use in production. And I somewhat devalued features and capabilities or product changes that had to do with making the product easier to sell. And I think that was a mistake. And so one of the pieces of advice I would have for entrepreneurs and founders out there is it is natural to pay attention to your product metrics in terms of features that get a lot of usage, but give fair weight to features and product changes need to be made that help the product easier be easier to sell. Uh, those are just as important. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, Helen, what we've been talking about is sort of how product uh, incorporates feedback from, let's say, sales or marketing in, in terms of their product uh, roadmap schedule. The other is uh, the handoff goes in the other direction. Is like how product can best share, let's say, the new features, the things that are working on with marketing and sales. 
And in particular, that's where product marketing plays a, a, a critical role so that um, in this rapidly changing environment where the product is iterating, the sales teams are iterating, they are constantly updated on what is happening on the, pro- on the product side from a from new feature standpoint. That's a great point. Let's imagine there's a really key new product capability coming out based on customer feedback. Well, that gets launched. How does that then get fed back into the go-to-market playbook? Like if that new product feature now becomes part of the go-to-market playbook, like that's a really important feedback loop back into marketing and sales to change the go-to-market playbook so that, you know, this new capability or this change in the product actually becomes part of the go-to-market playbook. And I bring that up because it shows an example of how the playbook is very dynamic. It's not like you work hard on it, you finish it, you're proud of it, and then you follow it like the Bible. Yeah, it iterates. Like, you know, if you, it's hard to get it done the first time and you sort of, you're super proud, like, woo, it's done. And yeah, you're right, Tay. There's sort of a tendency to be like, ooh, it's the Bible, don't change it. The reality is there's lots of little iterations happening all the time. You should not think about the go to market playbook as static, but at the same time, it shouldn't thrash. Like, it should be, you should be very deliberate about making changes to the go to market playbook. Yeah. And that's why it's important to, you know, we talked about marketing, sales, and product, but there's actually a third group that's involved in these handoffs, and that's uh, like your finance, your FPA team that can really uh, analyze what the metrics are and also really understand what the ROI from these go-to-market or product investments are and then provide the, uh, some another additional level of input as people are making decisions on evolving or implementing their go-to-market playbook. Yeah, this was, this was really sort of a fascinating side effect for me in getting a go-to-market playbook working is that once you get the go-to-market playbook working, Sort of the, I don't want to say the metrics come for free, but they kind of do. Because if you actually have a structured customer journey that customers are moving through and you sort of paying attention to blockers, you can just watch customers and prospects move through the go to market playbook and where do they get stuck? Where are they moving faster? How long does it take? How many of them convert? The metrics of customers and prospects moving from stage to stage to stage becomes like some of the most important metrics you'll get to measure like the health and success of the business. So, you know, the FP&A team starts to pay attention to those, the sales and marketing team starts to pay attention to those, the CEO starts paying attention to those, you know, by having this structured playbook approach, uh, I don't want to say your metrics come for free, but the metrics come naturally, I think is probably the best way to think about it. How would you actually measure the results? Well, the ultimate measure I I view for finding go-to-market fit is what many people call the magic number, which is for every dollar that you invest in go-to-market, you know, how much new revenue are you generating? But as Bob told me many years ago when I first talked about that, he goes, that's great, but it's a lagging indicator. It's not a leading indicator. And there's no way for me to operationalize that as CEO of the company. You know, it's great for spreadsheets. It's great for investors. It's a great way of comparing across companies and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, how do I make that better? I don't know, Bob, if you remember that conversation. Yeah, this is funny. I'm having flashbacks on this conversation. Yeah, so the magic number is a lagging indicator that's sort of a result that you wake up at the end. You're like, yeah, that looked good or that looked bad. How did you get to that? That's where these metrics that fall out of the good market playbook become really important because the actual operational part is, 
how much did you spend on marketing and how many customers ended up in the first bucket? How many customers went from stage one to stage two? How many customers went from stage two to stage three? How many went from stage two to stage four? So you can actually see where customers are going, how they're coming in and where they're getting stuck, how fast they convert. And that's actually operationally as CEO and as marketing and sales and product, you can actually take actions to do something to make things better at various points in your playbook. That is operationalizable. Telling the team, hey, make the magic number better. Nobody knows what to do with that. And, you know, on that subject of metrics, how does it help align the team? Presumably, you know, if you can present statistics to say that it's working, does it bring the team more on board with the playbook? Well, I'll give you an example of like one metric handoff that uh, I've uh, become a big proponent on. And this relates to the handoff between marketing generated leads to sales. And, you know, marketing now with the advent of all this marketing software and everything have, you know, this huge number of metrics for tracking the, the top of the funnel, whether it's unique visitors, registration signups, uh, um, MQLs, all that. For a sales-led motion, you know, what I ask out of that is I just want to know one thing, and that is simply how much new pipeline is generated by marketing. And, you know, new pipeline is simply defined as whatever sales start spending time on, what deals that they're spending time on. You know, some people call it like stage two or stage one, all that. You know, every company has different definitions, but I find that the key is to that handoff from marketing to sales. It has to be what new pipeline was generated that uh, uh, sales and then can follow up on. And have you ever had uh, any experiences of the team not aligning with it, perhaps because they don't see that the metrics are working or they can't see? Yes. Yes. I, I've had so many cases where marketing is so proud of their MQLs or this or proud of these other metrics. And, you know, there aren't these sort of new pipeline generated for sales. Mm. The the, the, you know, the thing that I found on the metrics and in talking to other companies as they've been working on their playbooks and their metrics is if you look at historically sort of how marketing teams were trained was look at leads. How many leads do you generate? Sales teams were trained to be like, what's your, what are your, what'd you book? How much did you sell? And if you look at their incentive programs, they're sort of tied to those things. And just the cultures and operations of the different teams are paying attention to different things. You know, sales is like, how much did you book? Marketing, how many leads did you generate? Products like, how many features got used? And, you know, what's our NPS score? Those are really good metrics for those teams to be paying attention to, but in some ways they're pretty stovepiped. I think that's where the magic of the go-to-market playbook comes in is now suddenly everybody starts lining up behind the go-to-market playbook, being able to share with the team about, all right, how many customers are in this stage and how fast are they moving and what's causing them to move faster or slower? How many people are moving from eval to converted win? That's a really important metric, right? Who owns that? Well, it's sort of sales, sort of product, like maybe marketing. It's paying attention to customers as they move through the playbook and what's working and what's not working, that those metrics are the ones that I think create a more synthesized view of teamwork and collaboration around the entire journey versus just paying attention to sort of the more traditional functional metrics. 
And, and by the way, Helen, what Bob was saying, if we're talking about metrics and alignment and all that, is that you know many times he's referring to the customer journey. And, and so that's why we had in the prior podcast, it was so important to make sure that you have the right customer journey. Mm-hmm. It's that it's the entire customer journey. And the third is that you have everyone agree on the same customer journey. Because I've seen cases, unfortunately, where different uh, departments had different views of the customer journey. Yeah. So who has to align the team? You know, if marketing has one view, sales has another view, product has another view, is that the CEO's job to look at the metrics and say, no, the playbook needs to go in this direction? My hope and my belief on this is the go-to-market playbook ends up being owned by the executive team. Like, you know, if you look at every startup, uh, you know, small, mid and large, you know, the executive team gets together every week and having the go to market playbook and like the metrics that come out of that and what's working, that's not working, having that be a topic that's discussed and reviewed and action items come out of it at the executive team meeting is how everybody starts lining up around it. They start conceptualizing it. Uh, they start being able to see like what other teams are doing, how what they're doing fits into it. So at some level, because it's owned by the executive team, it often in the early days ends up being sort of a CEO priority. Um, so it needs to be one of the top five things on the CEO's list. Now, the week-to-week sort of driving of it, sometimes it's the VP of sales, sometimes it's the CRO. Um, it's a little bit different in every company, but there's whoever's responsible for sort of building the systematic end-to-end go-to-market, that's who should be driving the playbook. Yeah. But I think fundamentally the CEO has to be fully behind it. Yeah, it's got to be a top five thing for the CEO. Because there are natural conflicts between the departments and, uh, you know, you need fast, you know, resolution. And, you know, when you do need to evolve the playbook, I know we've talked briefly about evolving the playbook. How do you know when you need to evolve it or actually create a new one? Okay, this is way harder than it sounds. <laughs> That's the punchline. Um, it's really hard to get your first playbook done. And once it gets going and you start building the automatic muscle motion behind it and iterating a little bit here and a little bit there, it's awesome. So now here's the hard part is fast forward six months or a year and the company comes out with a major new product capability going from like selling a single product to selling a platform. Or the company says, hey, we're going to go after an adjacent market. Like we're going to go from, you know, selling large enterprise to selling mid-market. When you do that effectively, the company needs a new playbook. And sometimes you're adding a playbook or evolving an existing playbook. The hard part about this is number one, recognizing that you have to build a new playbook and actually going to do it rather than just sort of throwing a new product on top of an old playbook. That's sort of the big mistake a lot of people make, particularly larger companies is, hey, we got a new product, throw it through the old playbook and it doesn't work. Surprise. The second thing that's really hard in this is that the magic in getting the playbook right in the first time is sort of the company develops like this muscle memory and muscle motion where it becomes sort of automatic that they know what to do. Changing that is hard. So we talk about some stories about that, but in my experience, like evolving the playbook, little iterations are actually not that hard, but when you need to either add a new playbook because you're going after a different market or fundamentally change your playbook because you've had a change in strategy, that takes a tremendous amount of energy from the executive team and the entire company to change that go-to-market muscle memory. 
This is where I, I would disagree with Bob a little bit. All right, bring it on. What I mean by that is, you know, building a new playbook is hard. Okay. And uh, I absolutely agree with him that building a new playbook is hard. However, uh, because you're coming out with a new product or something like that, at least there's uh, people can conceptually think I've got to do something different. But evolving the playbook turns out to be the key to winning. <laughs> and, and having it so you're getting the right feedback, the right executive team involvement that Bob is talking about and all that. Uh, so you're evolving. I mean, frankly, evolving the playbook is the fundamental of great execution. And this is why some teams have great execution and some teams have poor execution. See, Bob is good at executing. So he just takes evolving the playbook as sort of easy. Oh, no. Oh, no. I've got a story about pain here. Uh, <laughs> all right. So this transition Tay is talking about in terms of evolving the playbook, for a lot of companies and a lot of startups, they have an act one where they sort of figured out how to get from like zero to five or 10 million. But then there's an act two where their product or platform gets bigger. They go tackle other markets. And if you really look at companies that unlock growth and get to be big, like 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, they had to make that successful transition to act two. So Mobile Iron went through this transition from act one to act two in the fall of 2012. And I remember it vividly. We went from selling effectively device security to IT teams to selling a much broader platform that did application security, content security, and single sign-on. It was a much bigger sort of platform story. And we knew we were driving this based on customer needs. We knew it was going to be a much bigger market. It was going to increase our ASPs. And But the story most people don't know is... In the fall of 2012, we launched the new product, we rolled it out, we did a bunch of training, rolled out the new story to the sales team and the marketing team. And then in like February of 2013, everybody went back to doing what they were doing before. <laughs> and I was terrified because effectively, like we went back to what we were good at and everybody knew what to do and sort of the automatic and muscle motion. So it's totally understandable. But I'm looking at this going, oh my God, we got to get Act 2 to work. And we just rolled all this stuff out and we basically just reverted back to what we were doing before. And I was like, oh my God, what do we do? Somewhat controversially, I decided the answer to that question was brute force. Sort of recognizing that the issue here was effectively we had to sort of unlearn muscle memory and le relearn new muscle memory. And that's hard. In Q1 2013, I basically made every single sales rep in the company and every single SE and every single marketing person present the new broader act two story to me one-on-one -on -one, as if I was a customer. Spent three weeks, basically my entire day, listening to pitches and grading people. And you could argue, wow, is that a really good use of the CEO time? It should be other things to do. But you know, in retrospect, like the answer was yes, because getting this transition from act one to act two to happen across the company was the most important thing in the company at the time. It sent a signal that like this was super important and I was deathly serious about it. Uh, kind of scared people actually. But then at the same time, it was a great chance for me to see what was working and what was not working. And I got to see who took it seriously and who didn't. We fired some of the people that didn't take it seriously. And we saw some newer, younger talent who totally kicked butt in sort of selling the broader story. But the point on this is that 
re, you know, making this transition from act one to act two and making major changes to your go-to-market playbook is hard. And often people, you know, teams underestimate it and think we can just roll it out and it'll happen. My advice based on personal experience on this is it takes brute force and a lot of energy. But once you get it right, it's spectacular. Uh, so 120 days later, something like 50% of our new sales involved the new products. So the first time we tried it, that did not happen. The second time we did this that involved the brute force, it worked. So Tehi, do you have some final comments? If Bob's closing remarks is that use brute force to uh, get the team aligned with the go-to-market playbook. To, to change the go-to-market playbook, it takes brute force. Right. <laughs> what would yours be, Tehi? I would just say that, uh, you know, most people think building the go-to-market playbook is the hardest thing. I would say is executing the go-to-market playbook is much harder. Tehi Nam and Bob Tinker, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Survival to Thrival podcast with me, Helen Croydon, and co-authors Tehi Nam and Bob Tinker. This podcast is aimed at enterprise startup leaders. If there's someone you know who would find this podcast useful, please share it with them, subscribe, or leave a review. That's how others find us. Thank you.